0: Hello, folks. Welcome to the Football Pink podcast. I've never done a Football Pink podcast before, um, so this is going to be quite an interesting experience for me and Pete. Some of you might remember that we did a retro match podcast about three or four episodes a year or so ago, but now we're at the Football Pink, which is quite exciting for us. And it almost makes what we were doing back then, Pete, almost relevant to, to this wonderful institution that we're now Talking under Pete Spencer, you are my co-host yet again. Great to have you back. How are you doing? Yeah,
1: pretty good. Yeah, well, yeah, you're almost suggesting we were pioneers. I think
0: perhaps so. I can. We can go with pioneers, can't we? Pioneers is a fantastic word to describe the utter rubbish we were talking about of games that we were interested in, and we still don't know if anybody else was interested in. When we were doing all this before but we are back today guys uh i say with a new hat on but it'll be exactly the same stuff that we're talking about it's still very much a very much a retro match Uh, and with itv basically doing our creative thought process for us by announcing recently that they're going to be going back and showing all of euro 96 on the telly box um, we've got to have some football to watch at the moment, as, as we know. Uh, we thought, well, we'll just piggyback onto that then. And let's, uh, let's go over a few of our, I was going to say, favourite matches of the tournament, Pete, until you made me watch this one. And I quickly realised that this very much wasn't a favourite match of mine. A couple of classic moments in it, of course. But guys, as you probably guessed from the title that you might have clicked on, we're talking about Scotland versus England at Wembley. In, uh, in Euro 96. So, Pete, as we remember from last time, you were watching this, these games through slightly older eyes than mine and, and only slightly older. But why don't you kick us off by telling us what Euro... Well, well, not even Euro 96. What the time of the mid-90s was like for you as a football fan leading into England's first tournament at home since they won something back in sixty six yeah well, I
1: think for um for people like sort of you and i that that uh, were born just after uh, nineteen sixty six that that you know, you grew up with uh, people older than you or you know parents or whatever that all talked about having watched it and seen sixty six and how fantastic it was, and almost to the point of that you know you'll never experience something like that again so so for us, it was almost um okay, we've at last got something that we can uh, call our own um and there was a tremendous amount of excitement. Um, towards it, and, and, and particularly, I think from an England fan, as to obviously the '90s had started with um, in slightly inauspicious uh, circumstances with Graham Taylor's reign as England manager. So, when once Venables took over, um, personally, I was very excited about it. I always liked Venables, um, and I was like his style of play that was um, creative, different to lots of other uh, teams. We started to get one of two sort of young players coming through so having had the the disappointment of um of, nine, of euro sort of 92 which was just awful and then didn't qualify for 94 world cup so you know now we're into a situation where 96 is 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 the hope and we're the host nation so you'd expect to do uh, do well um I, I think also from a a club football point of view, we'd only just had a few years back into sort of European football, um, so having missed that as well, there was still again a sort of feeling of uh, catching up with uh, with things. We'd had a few years of the Premier League, so um, football had now got a different reputation in the 90s than it had in the 80s. Um, was starting to involve more people, people within the country. So we had more sort of foreign players playing in, in the UK. So suddenly, again, we've got this international competition where a lot of the players who were playing, we'd seen in, um, in our own football. And as we found out after the competition, sort of more came, uh, came over. So it, um, you really got the feeling that, that English football, if you like, was starting to perhaps take more of a, sort of a, a global stage uh,
0: yeah. No, de- definitely. I mean, for, for me, uh, this was my first adult tournament, I guess. I mean, I'd have been what? 11, 12 for, uh, for Italian 90, I guess. We, I, I can't even remember much about Euro 92 other than Basil Bolly's headbutt, I think, on, on, on Stuart Pearce. And then, and then obviously Lineker being subbed. Uh, 94. I remember the, the Holland game uh where we uh, where we finally had the final nail put in the qualification coffin i remember that game vividly and i do remember watching sort of usa 94 with with my best mate at the time but uh but yeah i mean sort of international football wasn't wasn't really much of a thing i suppose uh, at that time for me but again with the build-up to um with the build-up to euro 96 yeah very much getting into the spirit of it and uh with it being the first adult tournament obviously that opens up a whole new world of watching of watching football with your mates uh when you're getting to that sort of age as well so yeah it was the, the mid-90s i mean i suppose i would class myself as growing up in the 90s really because i mean that's where you cr- i crossed over from childhood to, to adulthood i guess so yeah this tournament very much um, typifies and sums up a lot of that time. And we're not talking about World Cup ninety eight, but World Cup ninety eight kind of became an extension for that as well. But it was it it really was a time. I mean, I mean music was finding its own way. There was the whole Brit pop thing going on. You had all these kids appearing at Manchester United that had that had talent. You had Robbie Fowler at Liverpool, of course. I mean Michael Owen was probably still what, 14 in Euro ninety-six before Becoming a full, fully fledged star two years later, um, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it was a, it really was a, an interesting time. And then in in and amongst all that, yeah, you've got, you've got Terry Venables, um, the Cockney wide boy, as many saw him as, rebuilding in- English football's international reputation um, on the, in amongst a load of friendlies, which, Although a lot of people think, oh yeah, great, is England get a free pass to a tournament to actually start rebuilding a side that's going to be competitive on home soil in their first tournament. Um it's well having missed the previous one, it wasn't ideal preparation for him either, I seem to seem to recall. But Pete, can you tell us what a Christmas tree formation is? Because all these years later I'm still struggling to work it no, out.
1: No, I mean I suppose as we'll probably see. Um, I think I think certainly in this game, the second half particularly, uh, I got the feeling that that was the formation he went with um, and ended up uh, being more sort of creative, I suppose. I, I guess it's to do with with the two wide players, um, Anderson and McManaman, not necessarily being out-and-out wingers, so perhaps not deeper and maybe had a bit more sort of um, protection in front of the the defence, um, and, and yeah, I guess because we, you know, in Sheringham's role as a as a what we'd now refer to as a number ten election sign was that popular. Pop, it wasn't. You didn't come across that that often with the uh, with teams. Um, you generally still, particularly in England, had the two up front, uh, whereas him sort of playing a bit off the uh, main striker, Shearer. That um, that. Again, created different view for the uh, for the uh, defending side to uh, to try and sort of counter. Um, yeah, it's, it's weird. I mean, I've tried it in Albion, sort of thing quite Football Manager, and you uh, in various sort of suggestions. It's either successful or not. But I think obviously, as, as with so many of these formations, yeah. players
0: don't you? definitely. And, and I mean, I sort of I asked that question a little bit in jest initially as well, because back in '90s, sort of. In 1994, 95, 96, when Venables was very much putting this sort of tactical plan together, it was it was the talk of the media. Christmas tree formation, this formation, that formation, because even in that point, really, English football was quite widely still welded to a 4-4-2 shape. And of course, there's different shapes with a 4-4-2 and all that sort of side of it. But even then, the likes of a Sheringham or a Beardsley or a Nick Barnby dropping off the main striker. A Zola, I I don't think Zola was in in Chelsea then, but would obviously come on to being in Chelsea. Cantonar, these players as playing just that fraction deeper, still used to confuse the living daylights out of, out of teams in, in creating space. A back three, even then, wasn't crazily popular, and, and Venables would flip between a four and a three at the back quite frequently, mainly due to the fact that Gareth Southgate was growing up to be a player of international quality that he could trust to be able to do either. I get feeling that was a little bit sparked by the, um, by the great Ajax side of that time where you had the likes of Rijkaard or Blind sort of either playing in front of the defense or in the defense or in a sweeper sort of role as well. So Venables was clearly the most tactically flexible coach we would had in charge for, well, I'd go as far as possibly saying forever. Um, And when, when you're then comparing him to, to to the late Graham Taylor, who at club level clearly was a very 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 good manager, but for whatever reason it just didn't transfer over to international football. There was a lot of reason to, to be um to be positive going into this tournament, even if Alan Shearer hadn't scored in, an international goal in 21 months. Yeah,
1: you're you're right. I mean, certainly the the back, if you you may not necessarily sort of, but I I remember being sort of around the time the fuss that was created in um, Italian 90 when uh, Bobby Robson was thinking to going to a, a back three and there was still a, a suggestion that it was a team that came one or two players that came up with this idea um, and it was still seen as you know those sort of dodgy foreigners what do they know um, and yet you know, clearly did know more than, uh, than us I mean I, I suppose with the sort of number ten role, from from my point of view, that's really what. Once Dalgleish got to thirty, that's the role that he played with Ian Rush, and that's why the two of them were devastating. Because Dalgleish didn't have the pace; he would stay back. He was great at sort of creating, and, and Rush was just this this hair. But um I mean, you you mentioned sort of Shearer. He he certainly, obviously, the debut under under Taylor, and and had a quite a sort of goal scoring record. And yeah, and then suddenly it's actually. I looked at it because I, I remember. Obviously, everyone sort of knows about he went into the tournament not in score for ages. I don't think I quite realised how long it was. It was almost two years um, uh, for for England. Yeah,
0: it was, but I think some of that was to do with injury as well. So I think I, I'm sure there must have been an injury spell in there yeah, for
1: him. Yeah, like I think that. so. Um, yeah, that, that um, well, certainly for the sort of games that he played, I think it was six or seven games he hadn't sort of. Uh, scored in as uh, as well, so that was all the the talk they'd had the um,
0: the infamous trip to
1: China uh, for a, for a friendly.
0: Oh, yeah, we we were certainly going to come on to that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know the, the building up to the team. It was frustrating in a way. It's the first time I had ever experienced no qualification. Um, I'd experienced plenty of sort of don't qualify for tournaments, but not actually not going through a qualifying campaign. I hadn't seen that before. So um, watching friendlies was, was good, but to be been frustrating because, you know, OK, you've got two years to try and sort of build something, but players drop form and then there's other ones come through. And, you know, there were one or two t- people that got into this squad. People like Steve Stone, for example, who who had a really friendly match where he looked sort of quite competitive, and probably as a result of that, forced his way into the squad when maybe he wouldn't have been at the top of people's list from if you took Premier League players. Um, but the, the the whole sort of instance of of this formation he was wanting to 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 try and and he would use. As you say, young players coming uh, coming through. You know, people like sort of Gary Neville and, and Gareth Southgate, who um, who were still pretty uh, pretty young there. Um, and you got the feeling, really, I I do certainly. If Venable if sort of had carried on with England, then you know certainly I've seen similar sort of selections that uh, that Hoddle was able to make with the, some of the young. He seemed to sort of like the idea of a of a young player letting him loose and giving him his sort of his chance. And you, I think. Everything you read about him, players wanted to play for him because he backed them. Um, And I just watched something when we were doing the sort of research for this, which was there was an old football focus uh, thing for that day of of this game, and it's an interview. Yes, yeah, just happy-go-lucky, you know, laughing away, and and you wouldn't really know what was behind uh, the smile, perhaps. And um, I I obviously fell under the bell as uh, as as a number of other people did, but he did seem to sort of polarised opinion in some respects but um yeah you you sort of felt that it and almost to the point that you wanted us to do well too much if we weren't careful and and I think perhaps you know within the start of the tournament maybe the pressure was uh, was on us um because you say you're desperate for us to do do well in a way because of sort of
0: 66 there. That's a really good point, actually. I can't remember going into the tournament what my view of how well England could do was. I really have no recollection of um, of, uh, my expectations. I mean, I remember that the press were absolutely crucifying them, left, right and centre, because of their because of their trip to China and Hong Kong and the dentist's chair and, and Gaza. I mean, in, in, in my research for this, I, I saw flashing across my computer screen when I was watching something back, but apparently, and I can't believe this for a single second, that one of the tabloids, I can believe that the tabloids had done a vote. But I can't believe this was the actual outcome. 86% of people wanted Gaza kicked out of the England squad. I can't believe for a single second anybody who had any form of genuine understanding of football or even just was a football fan of England at the time would want Paul Gascoigne not in that team.
1: No, I mean, there were suggestions of, of perhaps he wasn't fit. And I think there was also this view of um, the English league was was way... Above. Better than the Scottish League, and then you know, okay, there's, there's quite a vast difference now, but um, not, uh, not so much back then. I mean, and you look at the Scotland team, then there was quite a lot of them played in the Premier League, so um, and and I mean, I hadn't quite remembered again until I was sort of researching he was um, Football of the Year at, uh, up in Scotland, and 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 obviously you know, doing well, but there was always that sort of yeah, but it's only Scotland, um, and so um, so I, I suppose it's this sort of thing that that the, I don't know why we do that with with people i mean i've, I've again there's a, any amount of young players who say that they were just motivated to want to play the game because of Gazza in nineteen ninety um and I think if you talk about tears you know um and okay, the injury made um quite a difference to to him, but um he was still an incredible player in it, and we always have that view that. Uh, oh, well, they're expendable in our team, but we never seem to sort of appreciate how would the opposition feel if we... A, um, surely you're giving them a boost. Um, and even, you know, a half-fit Gaza, there's just something he can aim. And even if he doesn't, you're just always aware that he could do that. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, but again, you can use him and, and you know, Beckham in, in, in years to come, possibly Rooney, um, and maybe people like, I don't know, Harry Kane or something now, maybe, that that, that people will just look at perhaps what they don't think he's he's done rather than what he can do and could potentially do and how to say the effect on the opposition is
0: no definitely definitely i mean that's i mean the the squad itself there were some curious selections in there and and even putting the likes of steve stone and steve howie to one side I i look back on it and the you had the neville brothers in there gary and phil but in my Casting my mind back, I was sure that that group of players at United all sort of came through together. And therefore, I was thinking, well, okay, so Phil Neville's at least one year younger than, than Gary. It might be 18 months or so. I, I, I might be out on that. But then those two have broken into this England squad. Yet we don't have Beckham. We don't have Skulls. And I just, I, just found that, I just found that curious. Um, because, again, tr- tricks of the memory, tricks of the mind. I, I thought they were all brilliant together. Rather than maybe that you could pick out Gary and Phil as being more ready for international football at this point than, than Scalzi and, and David Beckham. David, because that was
1: Hoddle's first game, I think. Um, and, and, and yeah, if I, if I hadn't just looked it up and you hadn't just said it, I didn't realise Phil Neville was in this squad. I, I would have probably said he wasn't, but um, you've said it and I've looked it up. And yeah, you're right. So um, I think, um, y- yes, it's surprising, I suppose. Uh, it's another thing that you almost sort of want to then look back on and see well, how did they. Develop and, and did they develop at a different rate? Obviously, skulls is trying to sort of compete against Gascoigne, Knapp, people like that, perhaps. Whereas, for a right back, perhaps uh, you know with Rob Jones sort of not really uh, having a sort of a long term injury at, the, at Liverpool, there weren't that many sort of wasn't that many sort of, sort of competition for a perhaps a right back place. Maybe he found his, his way in a bit better that way. But um, I, I, yeah, no, again, it, it it's very as you say when you it's not until you pinpoint we remember Gary Neville particularly in this game because of the cross um and you knew that he was part of this squad but um yeah you're right it's it's um it's not until you sort of Research stuff that you realise that uh, no, no, that didn't happen as you thought it, but yeah.
0: It's, it's well, so to set the scene a little bit more for for the listeners, and I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you have some idea of what happened in Euro '96. But uh, going into this game, England had already played their first match uh, and had drawn with with Switzerland, who were managed by Roy Hodgson. Uh, interestingly enough, is that interesting? I suppose it is quite interesting that Switzerland were managed by. By Roy Hodgson, who at the time was probably the most successful English manager on the continent, um, mainly because he was the only English international manager uh, going to, to international tournaments at the time. So, um, so you had Ray Hodgson uh, leading Switzerland, who had equalised and got um, got the uh, got a points from from England in the first match. Alan Shearer had broken his goal scoring sort of drought though, which was quite important for the context of the tournament. So this match was actually really important, aside from the fact that it was the, the old enemy, the, the, the rivalry between England and Scotland and all that side of it. Just for both teams themselves, this was an incredibly important game in terms of qualification for the, for the quarterfinals.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, 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 uh, we, we don't see... Uh, England-Scotland games uh, very much these uh, these days. But obviously back in, I mean, they had the British Home International Championship finished about sort of 83, 84. I think England-Scotland had a, an annual game up until about 89. Um, so again, that's only sort of seven years ago. So you're still going through a period of, oh, we're missing that. I wish we'd sort of had that again. Um, obviously now it's, it's a lot further away. So you have that whole once the draw was made, that whole excitement of... Um, of the two big nations coming against each other. And, and although Scotland hadn't beaten England for, for, for some while, you always knew that they'd raise their game. Um, and I think certainly because of the results in the first matches for both sides, this was a game to lose. Although probably for England, it was worse to whereas at least Scotland perhaps could have uh, found a way through against uh, Switzerland. But it was that. It had everything on it. And, um, yeah, I mean, England you know, started well against Switzerland. It was a disappointing not to have uh, either held on or, or, or improved on that. And, again, that just added to the, if you like, the stress, nervousness, pressure um, that, was, um, that was around the, uh, the, 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 the team. And I think certainly sort of the start of the game... You'd say, yeah, these were two sides that were desperate not to make a mistake, um, and that didn't necessarily produce a brilliant game. But it uh, it's certainly from a fascinating point of view of trying to watch, almost like boxing, you know, trying to watch people sort of suss each other out and work out where they can move them around uh, the ring or a board or something. And um, given that, say, it's really important of who you've got up uh, next, and obviously the Dutch had. Um, picked up some uh, some points against um, Switzerland. So suddenly that takes them into a better position and, and perhaps the Swiss not. So, um, yeah, no, it was, it was um, very, say, obviously because it's England and Scotland. And again, you know, these days, if it was a game like that now, um, there's a lot of Scottish players that either, if they play in England, they play in perhaps Championship or lower. Uh, and um, whereas, say, now you have still Uh, Lots of players that played either first Rangers or Celtic, or they played in the English Premier League. So, um, so, yeah, you knew all these players and you knew they were going to be desperate to win either side.
0: Well, I mean, going through the Scottish team sheet, I mean, it it was not a bad side by by any shadow of doubt. I mean, you had Andy Gorham in goal. uh, And Jim Layton had done a lot of the hard work to to get Scotland to the tournament. But Gorham was... Gorham was in goal for, for this one. You have got Colin Hendry, who at this point will have been a champ, uh, will have been a Premier League winner with uh, with Blackburn. Um, Gary McAllister, obviously, who uh, will have won the the last English First Division with with Leeds. Uh, will have played in the European Cup. Will have played in that famous game against Rangers in that time. And then it's still going to go on and and have a sort of a, an Indian summer of a career at Liverpool. At the at the turn of the uh, turn of the century, uh, yeah, I mean, people may not remember the likes of Gordon Dury and uh, and John Spencer as well, but John Spencer was playing for Hoddle and at Chelsea that season and had a good season, and Dury himself was kind of having a bit of a resurgence as a as a player, uh, and these two kept Ali McCoist on the bench for the, for this game. Which, uh, which I found curious, actually. And I couldn't find anything that told me whether McCoyce was injured for this one or it was just that these two were chosen as the preferred front two for, for the game. But this was a strong Scotland... Well, uh, let's, uh, let's not get carried away. It was a strong-ish Scotland side. Yeah, it was.
1: And, and um, I mean, obviously, then there's John Collins as well. He was um, playing abroad. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you're right. You know, lots of players... That John Collins, of course, at yeah. ...at a good level um and um and and would you know were playing for premier league clubs uh, in in good positions certainly if you get sort of again, you know strikers or whatever you think well the premier league can sort of choose from all sorts of anywhere in the world so if you're again you know, a scottish player playing as a as, as a striker then you sort of you're obviously pretty good um no i don't know with McCoist. i mean they hadn't scored that many goals in in this sort of run up to the uh tournament um i thought again not I thought he made a difference. Of course really just because again a formation change. I thought the game changed again when, when he came on. Um and um yeah, you know, he's he got a fantastic uh, goal scoring record. Uh, it's it's weird really why they uh, why they did whether they were trying to match England's formation. I haven't looked to see games in the run-up either. So um so no
0: so then going into going into the game I mean, england were lining up in what looked like it was intending to be a three a three five two ish type um type setup and that two at the top is very much with Shearer and sharing and dropping a little bit deeper but this was a game where southgate had been moved into midfield to start off with with the idea of being able to get gaza more involved more involved in the game higher up the pitch um with McManaman and Anderson not playing so much as what we would consider traditional sort of wing backs but wide midfielders again a little bit higher up the pitch scotland were looked like they were trying to match that themselves with um with, with a 352 type shape in their in to, in in their, in their own way and i think if we're being honest here the first half was not the kind of game either team were looking for in the first 45 minutes of the game that they, they needed to win. Um, and by the same token, I would say that Scotland probably came off at half-time a fractionally less disappointed in how it had gone so far. What, what was your take of that first, first 45 um, well, minutes?
1: As, as I said, the, 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 it seemed like it was sort of cagey, I suppose you call it, and teams sort of feeling each other out to and, and I sort of felt with Scotland played quite a lot of balls forward, sort of longer balls forward. And, and even though England um, dealt with Um Adams uh, and Southgate to a, to a point, there was always something sort of missing a bit when the ball dropped down to perhaps Ince. Um, I wasn't that convinced that Gascoigne had a great uh, first half. I was continually frustrated, much as I love the, the, the bloke, but continually frustrated with either he did the ball sort of quick enough and and, you know maybe that's me watching a game back in in sort of with current eyes where you sort of expect to see players release the ball and move the ball fairly quickly but um and there were times when he if he did sort of go on a a run again he'd sort of missed the 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 run of of a player further up I suppose um so yeah, that was a bit um frustrating. I think both defenders both defenses rather coped very well. Um neither keeper had much to uh to do. Um I think Sheringham had a, a header that he uh, from a um sort of far post header that just went sort of wide without doing much. Um I think um there was a time when Sheringham got the end of a cross from Shearer. Um, again, you forget if you haven't seen sort of Shearer very much. He was just was a really good crosser of a ball for a for a striker. Um and and he headed it straight into Gorham's arm, and hands, and and that didn't sort of come to anything. So you always felt that okay, it's gonna be this is one of those games where a ball's gonna nick it, you know, and, and um and neither side was necessarily sort of hell-bent on defending, but they weren't really going for it on the, on the attack because they were worried about sort of uh, conceding. So you didn't get to a point, I think with the Scotland-Holland game, um, Scotland had defended quite stoutly. Um, and so you always got the feeling that that, um, that they, they would struggle to sort of come at uh, Holland. I, I didn't get a feeling they were sort of in this game just set to defend. I, I got the feeling they felt it way through with England. Um, but I don't know whether either side particularly dominated it, um, and certainly the, the first sort of yeah, 10-20 minutes, nothing much uh, happened at all. But uh,
0: I was it was it was definitely even, and I think it was <laughs> evenly poor on on both sides. It, the thing that was I found strange though was the fact that this was England and Scotland, and there seemed to be very little bite in the game. There was there was no aggro with with the, with any of the players. There was none of the that first sort of five ten minutes frenetic um so almost just letting out the fact that there hadn't been a game between the two nations for for seven eight years this was the first time two teams had met in a major tournament as well so i i, I was expecting just to see a little bit more and then it, it was literally in the 30th minute um where there was a tackle that made you go oh there you go and that was john uh, john collins tackle on on gaza that was the first bit of a bit of bite, and even that wasn't that bad. It was one of those ones that looks a little bit worse than it really was, just because Gaza had to jump out of the way to avoid getting clattered. But he it wasn't a, like a, a a proper nasty tackle coming in. You got a few after that. Gordon Dury ends up with sort of a, a, his forehead split, but again, not in a particularly nobody's done him kind of way. You could suggest that he's he's headed Gary Neville's elbow. But if you look at the size of Gary Neville back then, I mean, he, he looked like a, a teenager playing football. He wasn't, he wasn't the fully formed defender that he, that he went on to become in, in later years. The thing I found most interesting watching this game back, because I was, I was having to watch it, watch it in Russian for various reasons, as I believe you were too. When you can't understand the commentary, you start to listen to the crowd a lot more. And you sort of, you, you I mean, if you're like me, you can probably be stepping away from a game for a few minutes, but you still can read kind of what's going on just by the, the crowd. And the, there was nothing going on with the crowd. There was, I mean, the amount of times you felt that crescendo, and it would have been more of a crescendo for England, obviously, being, being at Wembley. There was none of that, really, in the, in the first half at all, until, as you've already mentioned, I think it was about in the 40th minute or so, Gira has pulled wide, delivered one of his really good crosses, and, and Teddy Shergham's got the end of it, but, but headed it straight at the keeper. That was it in the first half. I mean, I think Seaman had one little flap at a hopeful cross, which looked like it might cause problems, but didn't really. And that was it, at half time. We we had we had a very very poor game of football, and then comes a little bit of legend. I think it, I think it's fair to say at half time. So so what, what happened at half time then then Pete that uh, that made this game less terrible moving into the second half.
1: Well, I mean Redknapp um, Venables brought Jamie Redknapp on for um, Stuart Pierce and, and, and there'd been a little bit of um, okay, lots of and the press had one or two people suggesting that Pierce couldn't play in a back three. Um, and then what what I think felt better with this system was that Redknapp was a good passer of the ball. He was in good form with, uh, with Liverpool at the time. Um, and he was able to link people up in a way that Gareth Southgate couldn't. Um, so you suddenly had this situation where Again, ball would probably be played forward. We defend defend it better, and now Redknapp is either able to break up some of the play and link players in, um, or he certainly he's able to do more with the with the ball. And suddenly it seemed to release people like Gary Neville. It seemed to release McManaman, and suddenly as an attacking force, we had more options. Almost as if, if you look back at the first half, there was a slight nervousness in the team as to whether we were able to defend with enough bodies that if we lost the ball, we'd be able to sort of get it back and we wouldn't be left short at the back. Whether that was the nervousness in the first half, I doubt you'll ever get the players admit that. But it, it, again, looking back on that, you could all, if that was the argument you're trying to come up with, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that. Whereas suddenly Redknapp's on and, OK, fine, he's going to break up the play. And he wasn't known for his you know, tackling like, like Ince was. But suddenly again, Gascoigne seemed to be further forward. And yeah, again, I don't know whether the everything is talked about Redknapp being the change, but it can't just have been him. I, I, Venables must have talked about various players that perhaps weren't um, sort of doing what they should have done perhaps in the first half and didn't realise it. And then suddenly he sort of had a word and they're able to, to concentrate. So they seem, for me, sort of, Several definite changes with a number of players uh, that were now more positive um, where we hadn't been. Now, again, you don't know whether that's this sign of both sides sussing each other out. And, and, you know, we could be critical and say, well, nothing really sort of much happened, but maybe England didn't get the attack from Scotland they were expecting. And so then they were able to work out that there are, there are deficiencies in various areas. They're a bit weak in the play on certain sides. Um, I think. And, and certainly down their left-hand side, they uh, they were sort of weakish, if you like, and so we were able to sort of exploit that. Um, and, and similarly, Scotland perhaps weren't expecting the, the change because it was just um, effectively sort of just a, a, a personnel change rather than necessarily a formation change. Um, and so suddenly they, they ha- now had something different to deal with that they'd never had to deal with in the first half. But um, yeah, it was a case of sort of, Right, we've now made our move. That's changed the game. Now what have you got? Um, and I found that, again, fascinating for watching it back without having the nervousness of not knowing what was going to happen.
0: Yeah. yeah. No, it, it was an interesting one. I seem to remember at some point hearing in the press or in a story that was told about the game that it was actually Don Howe who came up with the suggestion um, to, to, make, to make that change. And they wanted... Um, Gary Neville to be closing down on the left-hand side a little bit more. And this was the change that they, they came up with that, that allowed that. Because what we also then go on to, to see is that although England are playing with the back three of Neville, Adams and Southgate now, it's actually Gary Neville, the right side is centre-back, who is overlapped in his normal right-back kind of way. Um, and these, I mean, it was amazing what Gary Neville was allowed to do when he was allowed to cross the ball without having to pass it to Beckham to cross the ball. Gary Neville wasn't a bad crosser either. We just never got to see it in his in his later years at United. But we we talk a lot nowadays about how Sheffield United have got overlapping centre backs and and all this sort of side of things. But this is England's right sided centre half of a three, playing on completely on the outside of the attack overlapping there's obviously a bit more confidence now that he's going to get the ball because we're keeping it better in the field we're moving it better in the field it was a nice combination that set it up to allow to be crossed and then neville's delivered an an excellent ball across the sort of ball that defenders hate defending because it's in that in that jeffrey boycott corridor of uncertainty type area and and uh, and Alan Shearer is able to arrive at the back post and and put England England 1-0 up. I think as you say there was it wasn't just the fact that oh yeah Redknapp's come on but it felt like Gazza didn't have to come as deep to get involved in the game now because he had more confidence actually if I stay there I will get the ball now. We didn't have to rely on Paul Ince to start starting moves because Ince he wasn't a he wasn't a midfield playmaker he was a midfield destroyer and so we were there was a and if he's alongside Southgate, there was almost you're asking almost having to ask Ince to do something that he couldn't do, or Gaza was having to come back 30 yards and therefore wasn't in the space that we wanted him to be in um, when, when the ball got there. So this I mean this this change did fundamentally change the uh, the way it was going. But we felt that in the Switzerland game briefly that we were, we were okay. And we were okay in this game after this change until Tony Adams decided that he was going to get a little bit clumsy and, and give away the penalty. Yeah,
1: they. Um, well, I, I, I think I felt that um, certainly when, once England scored, and then when they uh, when they sort of the immediate aftermath of that, we looked like we'd get a second. But then once you got to about. Um, trying to look at my notes here probably about the hour mark uh, suddenly Scotland started to come back and that was what I meant about getting really interesting to watch the dynamic in terms of now the Scots have got used to how we're playing and are now having sort of adjusted and now having to go back and just before that um, that penalty McCoy comes on and and as I said to earlier I think he made a difference because he gave England something else to think about there was a point where you were a little worried that um, whether Neville had perhaps uh, brought him down or something on it. Oh, no, he gave a back pass, didn't he, back to Seaman? That was a, an interesting one. Um, and so there were sort of, he added, because they are two up front, he added something else that England didn't have to worry about. And now they're concentrating again on less defend rather than just expose ourselves. But um, I, whether I felt that the goal was always coming in terms of the Scotia, I, I don't know. But certainly, say, they, they had the better of the perhaps leading up to that. Um, I've watched that several times, that, that, that penalty. I, I'm, okay, I'm an England fan. I'm, I'm still convinced that jury falls over Adam's leg, but maybe I'm biased. <laughs> I
0: I, th- I thought it, I re- I remember thinking at the time, and I was still think it now, having watched it back, I thought it was a nailed-on penalty all day long. <laughs> Absolutely stonewall. And I think the reaction of the England players, there wasn't, there wasn't a great... I mean, there wasn't a Manchester United type remonstration um, of, the, of a similar time. So, and then, and then, this is where we start to go into these bits of Euro '96, which become, have become absolute folklore, and probably make us look back on this tournament thinking it was actually higher quality than it really was. Um, because we now go into three minutes of football that will, will always be remembered in, in English football history, no matter the outcome of the, of the tournament. So Gary McAllister, if there's one player I didn't want taking this penalty, it was going to be Gary McAllister. As soon as the penalty was given, I thought, oh, great, here we go again. Uh, we've, we've gone one nil up, we've given away a silly penalty, and we're going to be disappointed. There was no way McAllister was going to miss this penalty in my mind. And I liked David Seaman. I didn't like the goalie top he was wearing, but I I liked David Seaman. Absolutely no way that McAllister was going to miss this. Now, it's not a great penalty in the end. History has shown that the ball does move slightly. And we've got to make a decision now, Pete, whether we talk about Yuri Geller now or we talk about him later. But because I mean, we're kind of in, we're interjecting him into a sequence of play here, which leads leads to something fantastic. I mean, should we should we talk Geller now? Uh, we can do yes if, if if we have to. Well, I mean, this this is the thing, Yuri Geller. For those of you that are uneducated on on Yuri Geller, Yuri Geller. Um, I think became famous on morning television because he was able to, on live TV, bend a spoon with the power of the mind. Now, I'm not going into whether that is uh, camera trickery or whether he could actually do it or this, that, or the other. The fact is that Yuri Geller was able to use this to make himself a bit of a star of the, of the time. Okay? Now, he was also quite a good opportunist, I think it's fair to say. And like a lot of these uh, self-made 1980s, 1990s TV personalities, there was a lot of opportunism going, going on here. Mr. Geller claimed in the aftermath of this ball, clearly moving on camera, which probably meant that Gary McAllister didn't get the purchase on it that he initially hoped for, which then in turn lent to David Seaman making the save. Mr. Geller claims that he was able to Look at the television and make that football move. Now, I'm grateful that he did it, Pete. I don't know about you, but I'm I'm grateful for Yuri Geller at this point in 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 life. He's he's moved over to the UK. He's be, he's become part of the English society, and he's helped us out a great deal there. Where I mean, without him, would David Seaman ever have saved that penalty? Yeah, I
1: mean, I. I, I... You, you could argue the the point with um, you, you're right about it wasn't a great penalty. Um, I think the phrase that gets used a lot of times was this was a nice height for the goalkeeper, and we're 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 so well more than we were back then um, that we started to sort of see the. You can easily look at a penalty and say no, 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 don't hit it there. Um, and and, and I, again, watching it again, Seaman doesn't really move, um, so you can't say well he moved too early. Uh, he has expected a little bit sort of further to his right than it is because I think it's his left elbow that knocks it out of the way. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, McAllister says about the ball um, moving, but then Beckham used that in, in whatever. Euros that uh, he missed against Portugal. Um, where, so, I mean, Geller wasn't about then. And I, I forget what tournament it was that, that Gella was, unless it was this one that he was on the yeah Breakfast News saying, right, everyone's got to come and touch the television and we've all got a power of thought. We're all going to do this. England going to win. Uh, and so you sort of felt watching it that, God, we've got to join in. Otherwise, if England lose, it's my fault. Um, so, but then, you know, various people have tried to investigate him for fraud. So we'll stick with whatever we, we, we want to. Either say, well, it's David Seaman being able to save it. It was either the mistake by McAllister. I mean, what we don't know is whether it meant that McAllister didn't hit it where he wanted to. Because um, yeah. you'd sort of expect by it moving, wouldn't he have sort of shanked it a bit? But um,
0: I don't know. Well, I mean, the, the undeniable fact is the ball did move before the, he struck the kick. Now, that's probably not going to help Gary McAllister. I mean, we can't categorically say that that, therefore, is the reason that etc 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 but the ball did move and Gary McAllister missed the penalty so there's there is um it's, it's it's plain to see on the camera. But then what we go from there, now that is the killer blow. And there are many football cliches in life, but they off, these things often become cliches because they quite often happen. You just know, and we didn't know it at the time, but if you, we went back over the history of time and worked out how many teams have either conceded a goal immediately after missing a penalty, missing a clear-cut chance when they're the underdogs in a game and they really should have scored, or conceding straight after they've had a goal terribly chalked off by a terrible refereeing decision, all those kinds of things. It happens one hell of a lot. And before you know it, within two minutes, Siemens launched the ball forward. Uh, I think it's been flicked out to the left and it might, it was either Anderton or McManaman. Uh, well, I think it was Anderton. He's then just knocked it on first time to, to Gaza. And before you know it, Colin Hendry's on his backside. Uh, Gaza's flipped it over, over his head. And Hendry wasn't a mug by any stretch of imagination. Uh, and then Gaza, who's set himself up beautifully just to, just to volley it with the laces, home for 2-0. As a kid... That was the best England goal I had seen to this point. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, you'd almost, I was thinking when I was making my notes, is it, is it still the best goal at Wembley for, for an England international? I mean, I, I was trying to sort of ignore everything else that's come since. But um, but yeah, it just, it's, it's the timing, it's the occasion, and it's it's the the skill. And again, you know, if you watch players now... Lots of players do that, and there's lots of flicks and tricks that weren't really back in '96. In you didn't really see people do that. So, as you say, you know, a younger guy is looking at that. you're just amazing that what he's done. And so that's what I admire. I mean, you said about with sort of that sort of thing happening, and that's what's fascinating to me about team sport, is the whole sort of dynamic about the mentality of a team, Um, that winners would actually have gone on and said, right, we've got a penalty here, we had a chance, let's go again, we're in the ascendancy. But the slightly if there's a slight doubt within the team's sort of dynamic, there is that sort of, oh God, it's not going to happen for us today, is it? And that's not the sort of the winner's mentality, if you like. So it, it, it's really fascinating when it comes in a whole group of players, individual sport, then then that's uh, different. But that's what I meant about with Gascoigne. He was had the ability to do something brilliant like that in any game. And he, and he might go a whole 90 minutes and he doesn't. Um, but what you're picking him for mainly is the fact that he may well do. And, you know, what's he doing up there? Why is he so far forward? But it was that just, he'd run into the position, the space was was created. And, and yeah, as you say, Henry isn't, uh, isn't a bad defender. It just got done by a great bit of skill, um, well executed. And because it's not even the chip is sort of quite the you think, well, that's the first bit, that's perhaps, oh, he's done that, that's quite well. But he had the ability still to make a a fool of himself by hitting it straight at the keeper or or knocking it over the bar. Um, But no, I mean, he just, yeah, as you say, with the laces, it's gone in and the celebration as well just capped it. It it was, everything was just perfect about that. But
0: then, the celebration kind of encapsulates the whole thing as well. I mean, how, It's a difficult one to ask because we'll never know. Would we remember that goal as much as we do without the celebration? And I would still think, yeah, it was a great goal. But the whole thing finishes off the bit of theatre because it rounds off the entire thing around how the press had been on the England team's back, how they had absolutely caned Gascoigne for the dentist chair thing. This was perfect riposte to all of that not only a bit of skill that no other English footballer at that moment in time would have been able to put off possibly Robbie Fowler but Fowler wasn't on the pitch but I mean Gazza's there and, and, and he's done it but then to be able to go on and do the celebration that they have done you, you talk about scripts being written in football they I, the, the, the celebration was pre-planned they whoever scored was going to do that but it wouldn't have been as good had it been Alan Shearer. Yeah, I
1: yeah exactly. I don't know whether it had been asked one and said, if I score, this is what I'll do, or any of them did. But you did sort of feel afterwards that you were watching something almost sort of pre-written um, and, and that, okay, well, that was supposed to happen then and it's happened sort of exactly as they wanted. But that's, again, that sort of marvelling at uh, somebody's brilliance. Um, and, and yes, yeah, so I think you shouldn't separate the, 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 the two because they both go towards it. You couldn't do that separation, uh, sorry, that celebration a in bit, a bit of two-yard two in tapping. So at least he's, uh, he's done it on, on an extraordinary goal. And it's, again, that whole sort of euphoria that comes with scoring a goal. Uh, and, again, these days, you know, players have their own celebration or different celebrations for different goals. We didn't really see so much of that, perhaps up to 96. You might remember a few players doing it, but now it's a real art form. Um, and so, again, it just added to the whole thing of Gascoigne, you know, two, two fingers up to the press, perhaps, and, and just, look, this is what I can do. You doubted me. Try again, you know. it. Uh, yeah, was just, well, yeah, perfect.
0: Now... I mean, that's the game done, guys, at the end of the day. There's there's no point in us even talking about anything else that happened after this point because the game was done. It wasn't a particularly good game of football, but we've got a tactical change that has made it a bit better for England. And then we've got a moment of genius, which has sealed it this was the moment though for me even though we're going into the holland game and we're not going to talk about too much about the holland game because we're going to do that for for the next podcast but going into that game there was just now starting to that little bit of of momentum in terms of mentality about we might do something here actually we if we if we could scrape a win against the dutch and get through we're we're on to something and we haven't we've gone through this podcast so far and we haven't mentioned that damn song once was this the moment where that song started to mean something yeah i think it was because i don't think it
1: um it really came into being until sort of this was this was the sort of the first the first week of the end of the first week of the tournament and i mean you you've picked up on the similar thing that but I've got in my notes here that I felt looking back at it that this was the game that got the tournament going. They all talk about the hosts. You need to have the hosts doing well to, to get the sort of country into it. And, you know, we we love our sport over here. We're always going to sort of um, attend the games uh, well. They're always going to be a sort of good uh, atmosphere. But um, it was this sort of weekend. I mean, the day before the Czechs had beaten the Italians, um, which was a surprise. I think the day after this one is where... Croatia beat uh, Denmark with that devil Suka goal when he chips Michael. And of course, Denmark with a defending champion. So that happened the day after. And then that Germany beat Russia where Matthias Stammer as the sweeper is playing sort of phenomenally. And you're thinking, now we've got a tournament. And so, yes, you're starting to feel, and I can almost hear it now, the slight rumblings of it's coming home um, in the background. And I think there was that sort of feeling of, now we're getting going, now we've got a tournament, now this is something to get into. And I, and I hate to sort of keep bringing up the comparisons with 66, but that's generally what they talked about with that. The first game was really disappointing um, after all the build-up and it took a while to, 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 to get going. So um, And of course, you know, had we lost uh, or even drawn, then, then you've got a really tough uh, final match. But now you've got this thing, look, we can't just settle down. We have to do something against the Dutch as well. Um, because the Scots are not out of this, um, so um, yeah, it was um, it was still really well uh, well poised. But um, just a, yes, a, a big win, not the the best performance, but in a group situation, it doesn't really matter how you play; it's the points. And so it's after that the knockouts you need to look at for uh, for playing sort of performance. But yeah, no, it's um, just. Just fantastic, and 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 it's it's a sunny day, and it's you know it's just everything about that whole thing, Wembley Cup Finals, all that sort of thing goes with it that you look back from an English point of view and just just smile and uh, yeah, I think that did start it.
0: No, definitely, definitely. And guys, we're gonna go we're gonna go on to a few more of the of the England games in this in this tournament. We're categorically going to do Holland next um, because what a day that was, without giving away too much. Uh, and there was a at least one more game left after that that we should, we should look into in, in more detail. But with, um, I mean, Euro 96 is what now? Quickly do some maths. 24 years ago, is that right? Yeah, Christ, 24 years ago. So t- 20, 24 years ago, and it was until, what, World Cup 2018. It was the, it was the, the tournament that you look back on and go, I'll tell you what, Tell you what, there was, some, there was something going on there. Yeah, we, I think we, we probably all felt a little bit disappointed by World Cup 98 because it ended too soon. But this was, this was, this was the tournament that where a lot of people I know look at Italia 90 as their tournament. Um, and Euro 96 is one of those tournaments for, for a lot of other people. And this was the game, I think it's fair to say, that did kick it off and started turning it into what could be go on to become an iconic tournament. Great. Okay, guys. Well, look, that's going to bring us to the end of this, uh, of this Comeback Football Pink podcast. Uh, retro matches is always good fun for me and Pete, because we get to talk about the kind of football that we love watching. And there's not a lot else to be watching at the moment. So we're grateful to be living in a world where it is quite easy, even if it is in Russian to flick back to games of yesteryear and, uh, and have a little look back uh, at what we did. We'll be back again next week with, uh, with the England versus Holland game. Uh, and you really don't want to miss that one because there's quite a few people that still say that was the best English performance, uh, certainly of its generation. We'll be back again next week, guys. Thanks for listening.